The following Truth Barista podcast is a high beam ministry production. The anger is spreading over the deadly arrest of George Floyd. But deep in the middle of a pandemic, hundreds of mask-wearing demonstrators took to the streets of Minneapolis demanding justice for a fourth night. On the West Coast, demonstrators blocked busy roadways in Oakland and Los Angeles. In Oregon, officials say police headquarters in Portland were vandalized and then set on fire. But the only thing I do know is that we all need to do better. We need to love more, we need to respect more, do better. It's important that we also push back against the notion that all police officers can never be trusted or that America just at at its core is some cauldron boiling over with pure racism and inequality. America isn't hopeless. She's not irredeemable. The overwhelming majority of Americans just want to live in peace. They want to live in harmony with their neighbors of all races and all ethnicities. Most Americans are good people. And most police officers want to help, not hurt. Time and again, we see that the real change agents in America are those who stay in their communities and build them up, not burn them down. Welcome to the Airzats Coffee Shop. This is Jay, your truth barista, and I'm serving up a steamy cup of God's truth for the average Joe. You can catch me and this podcast on my websites, truthbarista.com, all one word, truthbarista.com, and highbeamministry.com. That's H I G H B E A M ministry.com, as in car high beam. We're shining the light of God's truth on the road ahead. Truth Barista, I've got a treat for you today. You do? I do. I ran into this guy over at Big Brain University. You didn't hurt him, did you? No, no, no. But he's such a good guy. I mean, I got to talking with him. He's there trying to feed all these hungry students over there, you know, because they don't have a lot of money. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah, we know. And, and he's got some programs where he kind of brings in food and stuff. And he's got an organization called Good in the Hood. What do you think about that? It's Good in the Hood. I think that's intriguing. Why don't you bring him in? Well, he's right here. Oh, hey, how you doing? I'm Jay. I'm the Truth Barista. You're... Hey, Jay. I'm Sean Morrison with Good in the Hood. Okay. Larry, amazing Larry, go grab a cup of coffee, sit on down here in the booth, and tell me about yourself, Sean. Well, I'm first of all, I'm a Christian, and uh, I love Jesus. And, Wonderful. And uh, the most important thing in my life is the day he received me into the family. I'm a husband, many years, a father, a grandfather, and I also... So I'll run an organization I think we're going to talk a little bit about called Good in the Hood. Okay. Well, now that you've mentioned it, why don't you tell me about what is Good in the Hood? Well, let me start out with this. Well, um, we could say that our coffee house is Good in the Hood. <laughs> we could, but I'd rather hear Good in the Hood. Well, we started back in 2003. And I was leading outreach and evangelism teams with a local missionary training college. It's now called Bethany Global University, but it used to be called Bethany College of Missions. And we would mobilize students in into the inner city. We wanted to use kindness-based initiatives, things anyone could do just to show that God's kindness makes a difference. came from the scripture, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where it says the loving kindness of God leads to repentance. And it's it's a means of reconciliation. It was to reconcile man to God, but it really reconciles, kindness reconciles people one to another. It works horizontally as well as vertically. We were actually going to name it Good in the Neighborhood, but Mr. Rogers kind of had that trademark, so we went with Good in the Hood. 
good, but we're really all about community. It's okay. not about stigmatizing and making the inner city a ghetto. It's really about saying there's a community of people there that God very much loves and that the people really, they feel connected. Question that kind of comes to my mind is when, you know, I'm a suburban kid, always have been. And when you think of the inner city, a lot of people think they kind of have a monolithic view of the urban area mm-hmm. and quite frankly, stereotypical. Give me a snapshot of where you're working and what it's like. Well, we work throughout the Twin Cities. We do work even in suburbs. So we work uh, anywhere in the metropolitan area, but we were first launched in South Minneapolis. There's, of course, a higher concentration of people in the inner city. And a lot of people think perhaps, I, I believe a stereotype would be that the city is poor. And so there's this mentality of pity. And I think that sometimes flavors things, maybe even stigmatizes, you know, a little bit improperly because there is poverty there. It's the greatest concentration of poverty, but the greatest per capita poverty is actually in the rural areas. What people don't realize is the fastest growing places of poverty have been over the last several years, the first and second ring suburbs. So my point is poverty is everywhere. It's no respecter of location, but in the city, you have the greatest concentration and you have the most social services. And so there's the most help. So it does cause people who maybe are dealing with issues of whether it be uh, situational poverty or whether it be generational, it, it draws them together because there's there's more support there. Fascinating. Okay, so why do you do this? Well, I can say this first and foremost. I was born in the city, North Minneapolis, actually. Went to school there for a few years. Then we moved to the farm. And I became a farm boy from about nine years old to about 18. So I'm kind of a transplanted rural guy back to the city. But I was going to school. I had just graduated, was now working for that college. I mentioned Bethany College of Missions. My wife, who was a Canadian, she went to get her citizenship. She went into the courtroom to, I tease her and say, renounce Canada. But uh, actually, she <laughs> says, I never did that. <laughs> but So as she was in the courtroom, I was looking over the city because I was up six, eight floors at the courtroom. And God just began putting a drop of his love for the urban community in my heart. All I can say is he just began flooding my mind with questions of things like, what if those who are my children would gather together and focus intentional, not random, but intentional kindness on the inner city and on the community? What would that do? How would that make a difference? That was just one. There was a few other you know, epiphany moments, but I began weeping almost uncontrollably. And there was a lot of people around me. I should have been self-conscious, but I was just so captivated by the spirit of God on me that I and by the love I had for the city, it was like I was looking at a baby that was my own newborn baby, and the city was that baby, so to speak, and I had to care for it, and I had to reach into it, and so Good in the Hood became formed out of that, and through prayer and other things that uh, the Lord began working in my life over the next six months of that time period, Good in the Hood was formed. You know, I'm sitting here drinking my coffee, listening and enjoying it, but I don't know what is intentional kindness. What do you mean by that? You know, kindness is really a great word. And I like to use the acronym for kind as kindness, inspiring neighborhood decency. Kindness is something that inspires others. It's noble acts. It's honorable things. It's things that people would embrace and say, this is making a difference. And it's when it's done in a way that it's activated. It's not passive. Kindness doesn't need to be aggressive, but it needs to be active. When it's intentional, it means it's planned out. 
It's not just random where we just come upon it on, you know, and just happens. A lot of people celebrate random, and I'm not against random. I think that's wonderful. But we want to be strategic because we want the kindness that we have to become a, well, I'm going to, I hate to use the word contagious maybe in this time frame of COVID-19, but <laughs> yeah. we want it to go viral, you know, mm-hmm. to be a contagious or viral momentum of kindness that goes even past the present time. It has perpetuity, maybe even goes generational. So we want it to continue on without end. And that's what we we believe God would have. Okay, so what are your strategic programs? What do you do? Yeah, well, first and foremost, we have a four-base approach. We call it quantity, quality, opportunity, and community. And what that means is this, we first want to stabilize people with enough and make sure that whatever they're lacking in life, and this is mostly basic resources, they have enough. And then the second base is quality. So we get the quantity taken care of. That's just stabilizing. Quality means we position them with quality of life decision-making opportunities. And that's where they can choose better food than just maybe things that are harmful for them. Uh, Instead of just, you know, things that are processed food, maybe give them fresh vegetables, things that I would want to eat myself. And it's not only just in the area of food, it's in all other areas of life too. But I'll use food as an easy illustration. Third one, and I think is the linchpin, is opportunity. When you have a recipient, you're giving to them and offering them free subsidies and free resources. There's no dignity in that. They're just getting a pity gift. They're the recipient. You're the one in control of the of the resources and you're the one in power, they're the one who are powerless. And so we want to take recipients and help them have dignity, not requiring them to give money for it, but maybe give them an opportunity to volunteer and be part of a cooperative experience. So they learn about task and then giving them even further opportunities to learn about leadership and have the power of responsibility, which is a linchpin. When somebody has responsibility, all of a sudden they bear the weight of their decisions and it changes their entire life because it not only changes their moment, they take that same spirit of responsibility home with them. They train their generations, their family. And lastly, it forms a community. A community of people come together to advocate for the local neighborhood, also to receive advocacy as they need it. And it changes them from that level and it allows them to become somebody that can really make a difference. So that then is in principle. So what do we do? We do food, we do shoes, we do foot care, has medical treatments for those that are experiencing homelessness, holidays. We bring resources and it usually starts with food as a gateway. And then that gateway, it's like a platform. Then we add other other what we call vendors who bring other resources and other opportunities. And then we have that relational proximity because we're interacting with people and we find out what they really need through listening and interviewing them and focus groups and so forth. Okay, I have a question though. Mm-hmm. Why shoes? Let's get some shoes. Let's get some shoes. Let's get some shoes. <laughs> well, you want the long story or the short story? <laughs> I, I can honestly say that, Truth Priest, you have more shoes. And I'll tell you what he'll do with your shoes. Go ahead, Sean. <laughs> I'll take them right off your feet. Thank you very much. Oh, well, here, <laughs> let me I got that right here. <laughs> Ooh, that's, that's right. not looking too good. <laughs> Never mind. I'll get you a new pair. So uh, shoes was kind of a interesting thing. We uh, were trying to feed the community. We had to resource it. How do you pay for all that? And we were trying to raise, let's say, about $100,000 at the time just to be able to feed the community with groceries. And one day, somebody called me up as a friend, and he said, "Uh, I've got a semi-load of clothing, brand new clothing. He says, would you like this? It's coming up from another state. And he says, I don't know what to do with it. And I said, let me pray about it. Yes. 
And so, <laughs> so I, I thought, a semi-load of clothes, that would be great. And we would have a garage sale. Well, I didn't know what a semi-load was. I was naive and wide-eyed. And so this semi came and I realized I was in over my head. Two 22-foot containers later that I had to rent because I had no storage. And I finally reached out to a friend who uh, did thrifting. And I said, oh, dear friend, can you help me? He says, sure, I'll buy it from you for 15 cents a pound. And I was like, sold. And so I ended up making, I don't remember, maybe $3,000, $4,000 for our food program. And that was a hit. And I got these semi-loads every quarter. So I was getting four a year. We did that a couple times. And then he comes up to me and he says, by the way, you know, I noticed you sometimes get shoes. And if you ever get some shoes, I'll buy those for 50 cents a pound. I'm not a mathematician, but that's a little bit better than 15. And That would be more now, wouldn't it? There you go. (laughs) So so I began noodling. I'm kind of a slogan guy. And I go, shoe away hunger. Got it. Yes. Pays for hunger. So it all started with us trying to monetize for hunger. We began doing shoe drives and so forth. And that was pretty successful. But along the way, a young lady and her daughter came to our food shelf in January. It was a cold January. And uh, they had no socks, just flip-flops on. And I realized they need shoes. And I was doing it for the monetization so we could pay for food. I realized we had a wonderful two-for-one. People actually need shoes here in the United States, here right in Minnesota. So it became an epiphany moment. And we connected with a local group, Shuler Shoes, who became a partner. And that thing has now grown. And uh, Shoe Away Hunger's helping us meet a lot of needs. In the you know, community. I want to hear more about Shoe Away Hunger. But you know what we have to shoe away right now? Uh, what's that? Well, I got to shoe away. Oh, this empty cup? The empty cup of my coffee so I can get more. So we'll be right back with Sean Morrison. Knock me down, step in my face, slander my name all over the place. I'll do anything you want to do. But I, I, honey, lay off of my shoes, don't you? Tell them I'm going to you. Well, you can do anything, but lay off of my shoes. Yeah. Hey, you know something? The Truth Barista keeps you grounded in God's Word. Get it? Grounded? (laughs) By the way, The Truth Barista is a production of High Beam Ministry. That's highbeamministry.com. High beams, as in car high beams? Friends, Romans, and countrymen, lend me your ears. What? I can't hear you. I've <laughs> lent you my ear. I know. Well, you know, but that's getting attention, isn't it? Yes, it is. But what are we getting the people's attention for? We want them to support the Truth Barista. Well, that is very, very true. Well, you know, we do have some needs, and we want people to understand our needs. We need people to understand that we want to get out further into our world. So That's right. So they could take this podcast and link it to all their friends and family and church-going members, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. You can get to the website and get the RSS feed so that any Anytime we post a new episode, you get a notice. We want this podcast to go to your friends, to your church, to the governor of your state. Share it on Facebook. Share it in your emails. Get the word out there. But the second need we have, Truth Barista, because we need resources in order for us to maintain this Truth Barista broadcast, and we need people to help support us. Exactly. And by resources, 
We mean finances, okay? Shekels. That's right. Shekels, dollars, bucks, pound, yen, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, because we need to pay for the production costs and the website and all of these incidentals. And thank God our production costs are relatively low, but we do need to meet them. So if you can help us, please go to the website. You'll find exactly how to do it online on the lower right side of the website, or you can send an email to the Truth Barista at gmail.com, the truth barista at gmail.com, and I will get in touch with you and tell you how you can help us. Help us get this word out to the entire world, and that truly is missions. Hey, Amazing Larry, you like that song that oh, I pulled up? I'm oh, a soul man. Oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. Okay, well. We're talking to a soul man. We are. We're talking to Sean Morrison with Good in the Hood, and he's telling us about his experiences in the urban areas, helping to meet needs, and then even out into the suburb areas. I mean, this is such an organic ministry because it seems like God kind of dropped it in your lap, and then it just kind of expands in these seemingly, to me, odd areas, but yet God is doing this tremendous impact simply by following following what he's doing. I mean, go figure. Follow God and there's fruit, right? Okay, so I have some questions. And by the way, I think the Erzatz Coffee Shop and all of our friends need to support Good in the Hood. And what's the best way to support Good in the Hood? Well, there's a couple of ways. First, I'm just going to say pray for us. I, my goal is a thousand intercessors, and then I need a thousand people to donate $10 a month to help us feed the community. That would help us raise almost half our budget for the year if we had a thousand $10 a month donors. Dare I ask how many are already lined up? Well, I don't know the exact number, but I know this probably in maybe around 100 right now to 150. So we got a ways to go. A thousand people, $10 a month. That would be a wonderful win for us. Okay. Could somebody give like $120 up front? They could. Yes. Okay. Uh, See, I do math too. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now I have some critical questions that I mean, I really need answered because Mm -hmm. being involved in ministry myself and watching all of the riots, let's face it, it started here in Minneapolis. I would like your input because you're really on the ground. You're in Mm -hmm. touch with the community. You know what's going on. Can I say boots on the ground or shoes on the ground? Absolutely. (laughs) Just don't be a heel about it. (laughs) There you go. Thank you very much. (laughs) Keeping this all in stride, given the current events of the George Floyd killing and the subsequent riots and the magnified focus we now have on racism. What are your observation and thoughts? Yeah, well, first of all, it's a sad time for us all. Sad for the Floyd family who lost somebody very dear to them. Sad for all of us, really, who care about our community. And, you know, I think that needs to be the starting place is we need to grieve. We need to have a theology of grief. I think sometimes we just want to put a band-aid on it and move past it. Grief deserves time, deserves patience. In the scriptures, when they grieve, they took time. They didn't just walk through it in a day and it was done. I think as a city, we need to grieve. Grieve not only the circumstance of, you know, George Floyd, but grieve that there is racism, there is inequities. I think some of the racism, it's branded racism, is actually cultural in nature. It's people hating another person's culture, not just their skin color. I think it's both and. And there's both personal racism or cultural inequities, and they're systemic. And I think it's both end. And I think what's happening is we sometimes try to cure a problem by overbalancing in another direction. We go from trying to stop racism in one direction, then we end up inadvertently becoming, you know, reverse racism. And that's not a helpful thing either. So I think we can't react here. 
That's the thing. We can't take a quick bumper sticker approach or a fast food drive-through approach. That's not going to cure anything. We need to take the time. I like to say this. We need to start by a prayerful listening. If we don't believe prayer makes a difference, we've missed really the gospel. God works through our prayers, and we need to take the time to really intercede and pray and know that that will make a difference. The next thing I think we need to do is is have relational proximity. I know a lot of people, they want to run and start resourcing the city and run and start you know rebuilding the city. And that's all well-meaning. But what happens is you got people that are three deep and helping all at once for two weeks, and then all the help goes away after two weeks. And so it's not pulsed. So it's just reactiveness instead of proactive type of help. So we need people that are relationally in proximity because the trust has been breached and we need to have trust-based relationships again. That's that's what's going to bring healing. Fill out that relational proximity thing again. What does that mean? Well, it means you're not just geographically close. You're actually in relationship with people. You have people that you know by first name and they know you. They know who you are. You know who they are. You know their way. They know your way. You care about one another. You can call on one another. You have trust. Without trust, we're just putting band-aids on problems. It's not really healing anything. It's just glossing it over. We need trust because without trust, you have to have collateral. You have to have something to protect. And this is harder than it sounds because it takes time and everybody wants it to go away you know, overnight. That's the problem with our society is we've gotten used to instant everything. And I remember the old song by Wendy and Mary. It's a a gospel singing group, and they had it. It was called Instant Breakfast, and it was all about instant everything. And then at the end, they said, and Lord, I want patience, and Lord, I want it now. Mm -hmm. And that's what we do. You know, it's that mentality. I never thought about the whole idea of hating somebody else's culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, usually it's all framed in skin color. But if I hate somebody else's culture, what do I do about that? I mean, that seems like a real preference thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, culture isn't innately evil. There's some things in cultures that are, but the irony of all this is if you go to, you know, different, you know, tribes in Africa, they are the same color and they have racism between the tribes. And so it's it's a lot of it's less about color, more about culture, meaning that you don't necessarily embrace the ways of somebody else. Some people think very task-oriented, as an example. Others think social. A social person will most likely be late for their appointments because who's ever in front of them at the moment is more important than their appointment. But a task person will be upset that that person's late because by being late, you're saying you don't value me. And see, these are cultural differences or distinctions, and we need to understand one another and not, uh, I'm going to use a strong word, a Christian word, to demonize one another over these cultural differences, but we need to understand them. We need to understand that these are not ill-motivated always. Usually they're not. They're just the way a person grew up in their community and their way of thinking, and it's okay. And when we understand it, we don't always then conform our ways to that culture, but we appreciate the beauty of it. And that's a, there's diversity, and that diversity is colorful. I like to say it's like in the autumn when we have the beauty of the leaves. They're colorful and they're different. Those distinctions are, are just wonderful expressions of God's grace. Getting back to that monolithic idea and that stereotypical idea, from your perspective – Boots on the ground, mm-hmm. pun intended. What was the community's reaction to everything that was breaking forth during the riots? Because, I mean, let's face it, reaction was the word of the day for our, everybody. Counter-reactions, people flying off the handle, mm-hmm. rushing to team up with other people, actually trying to bury the problem as quickly as possible or to solve mm-hmm. it as quickly as possible. What were the people from your ministry circles looking in on the situation? What was yeah. their 
their thoughts and reactions. Well, there's a lot of different thoughts happening out there, and I don't think there's one, I'll say, leading way of handling it. Um, What I find is this, the residents that maybe what we would say have the least power, they're grieving the most. They're the ones that maybe just are residents just trying to make ends meet. They're not what you'd call community leaders by a loud voice. They're just community keepers. They stay there. They've been there a while. And they're grieving the loss of their community as well as the loss of a member of their community. And they're probably, I can't speak for everybody. It would be remiss for me to try to do so or, you know, arrogant for me to try to do so. But from what I see or hear, they're grieving even change. Change is hard. Mm-hmm. And uh, yep. people were not expecting it. They were already dealing with COVID-19 and the lack of any socialization at a high level. And now... All of a sudden, it's literally out their front door or back door, and it's in their face. And it's the, I mean, they've lost their grocery stores. Now they're going, how do I get groceries? If I don't have transportation, do I Uber out to the suburbs to get groceries? There's a food desert now. That's what they call it. And so this is scary for them. They don't know how to make ends meet. Then you've got community, I call them self-appointed leaders. They're loud voices that speak on behalf of the community members. But they don't always represent the community members. They speak on behalf of them, but they don't speak for them. There you go. There you go. And they're self-appointed oftentimes. And But they're the loud voices. So they're the ones the media picks up on, and they flavor it a certain way, and it's usually got a political motivation. Then you've got people that maybe are transplants or transient they're ones that don't care about the community, but they're going to take advantage of this time and they're going to strip it bare and they're going to loot and they're going to hurt and they're going to start fires. And it's not the long-term residents starting the fires as a whole. A few of them might get, get caught up in momentum of something that's happening, but generally they care deeply about what's theirs, what they've been there for a long time. And I think that's the sad thing is we miss the larger narrative because we see only those, I call them bumper sticker narratives that media promotes because the loud voices get the attention. And the ones that do negative things get the attention, but not the ones that are doing heroic things. True. I was down in that area the night that 3rd Precinct was burned. I was there in the afternoon, and I was really grateful because I saw how the community fathers, and they really are fathers. I think it's Mad Dads or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is that the group? Man, their message was great. And I'm I'm standing next to Pastor Richard Coleman, you know, and yeah, name dropper. But I'm standing there in the crowd, just and I'm watching what's going on around me. And these guys are really speaking to the young men, and they are speaking to the crowd, and it was fantastic. And it was like this, yes, this is good. And then there was the other 40% that I called the lemmings and the squirrels. And anytime anything happened, their heads would snap around. They'd turn on their heel and they'd quick run down to see what the most exciting thing is. And then there was this section of the crowd about, and I'm estimating, 20%. They were the ones throwing eggs at the building and throwing bottles at the cops when they showed up to give aid to a person who was stabbed. And they're trying to help and the crowd's throwing stuff at them. And I was, this is so bizarre. And I'm looking at burned out buildings And one of the first thoughts that came to my mind, because my dad had a retail pharmacy. They lost their retail outlets. They lost their drugstores. They lost their grocery stores. They lost basic lifelines that they need. And then I heard the lady a day later who was crying, and she said, and I can't, you know, they've stopped public transportation because of COVID. How am I going to get anywhere to get anything that I need? 
And that just broke my heart when I saw that. And I'm going, these people did not think at all. It was, as you said, purely reactionary. It's somewhat of an emotional, what I feel about something. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I feel about something in a moment is not always what I should act out on. And sometimes, I, I don't know if it's immaturity or if it's just people are so broken in their heart or they're so victimized or they've just had inequities. We can all have this happen. I've had this happen to me too, where we get caught up in the momentum of what's happening without thinking of the long-term ramifications. What about tomorrow? We got to wake up tomorrow and now we've got a mess and we've got things we hadn't thought of that we got to pick up the pieces. And, you know, what about those who you know need medicine now? can't get it you know they're they're going to be at risk and particularly with COVID-19 and so there's all these things you know that are now in play that are larger and the problem lies is when we react out of a uh, pain we usually react awkwardly we need to be intentional that's why I believe in intentional kindness randomness does not have a strategy it just does a fire can be good or bad wildfire some used to say is better than no fire when they were talking about Christian, you know, zeal. I used to always say, no, you need to have controlled fire because that's the only thing that's going to do any good. Wildfire is going to burn the forest down. No fire does nothing. But we need to have controlled fire. In the same sense, we need to have a kindness that is focused and strategic and going to have long-term perpetuity. Instead of being reactive, we need to be responsive. How can Christians and congregations come alongside you intentionally mm -hmm. and be effective and help? Because there's, as you've said before, there are a lot of ways that Christians just are ineffective mm -hmm. at this time. Yeah. The jump in and go kind of reactionary thing. How can congregations work with you on a long-term basis? Yeah. Well, there's three things we talk about, and I'll use volunteerism as an example because it's the easiest way to illustrate and answer that question. We have flash volunteers, we have regular program volunteers, and we have organizational capacity building volunteers. We've broken it up into three levels. Almost everyone who first wants to get involved with us wants to be a flash volunteer. They just want to test it. They want to try us out. They want It's sort of... It's You're like, talking it, like a flash mob. They just show up and... Well, they show up at an event maybe it's a, you know predetermined and and it's yeah it's right it's, they're just kind of trying to figure out if they want to be involved they don't want any commitment but if they really want to make a difference the only way you can really is to be involved on a regular level where you build relationships and that's going to mean you you donate your time to a particular program and you know, once a month or once a week or whatever length of time but it's a regular pulsed time and you build relationship we don't need christian institutions as much as we need people christians to be christians in those institutions and so they need to go in and just be a part of the community and just love people the way jesus would the third level is capacity building for our organization if they want us to help us to create this net or, or network of influence in the city we need experts who are really good at what they do and who can leverage their intellectual equity for the greater good. But I would say it starts with flash volunteerism with an eye to getting involved on a regular level. Excellent. You know, this has been really eye-opening, Amazing Larry. I'm sure glad you brought Sean in here. Sean, I'm so glad that you were willing to come in and talk about Good in the Hood. This is just eye-opening. It is. And the thing of it is, he's leaving with a good cup of coffee and our shoes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I noticed that both of us Thank suddenly you very have, much. have bare feet here. That's kind of weird. That's kind of against, like, health codes, isn't it? Okay, well, I'll go fetch my uh, sandals back there. Sean, thank you so much for coming here. And Larry, set them up my with the next cup of coffee. And by the way, what's the website that people can go to to get all your contact information? Yeah, well, thank you. And it's great to be with you. Our website is goodinthehood.org. That's goodinthehood.org. 
goodinthehood.org. And that's like all one word? All one word, yes. Okay, goodinthehood.org, goodinthehood.org, goodinthehood.org. Get on it now. This is Jay, your Truth Barista. Thanks for listening to the Truth Barista podcast. <laughs>